It was at this purple hour as the sun was setting. And I saw Mount Baker in the distance. I said, okay, boys, just tighten it up. As we flew, transit's fairly loose. Tighten it up. We're just going to close at the big time in formation. I'm going to take us over by Mount Baker. White snow was turning sort of a light hue of purple and apexed over the top of the mountain and slid a, as a, a toboggan would down the glacial moraine of Mount Baker in perfectly still air. We had enough energy accumulated with that. We slid out the base of the mountain over to Abbotsford as the sun continued to set. We pitched out without a breath of air or bump and the power back. Typically when we would arrive, we'd show up with smoke and noise. There was something magical and, and so supple about what was going on that I pitched it out in almost perfect silence with the engines retarded. And we pitched out, we split up in three groups of three, we landed, and there was such perfect synchronicity amongst the nine pilots that day, as if we were all in the same airplane. There wasn't an inch of movement. There wasn't, there wasn't one pilot that wasn't moved by that, to the point where we got out of the jet and I walked over to my number two pilot, and he said, that was one of the most amazing flights of my life. Here we do all these crazy things um, in front of crowds and whatnot, and a simple flight with perfectly still air at this purple hour sliding down Mount Baker towards Abbotsford connected us all in a magical way in that airplane. Those were the moments that I recall. The perfect coalescence of team and craft, you know, man versus machine, man versus himself, all came together in that exact moment in that flight. It was absolutely beautiful. That's Robert Scratch Mitchell, our guest on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. He's an aviator who served 20 years in the Royal Canadian Air Force, during which he served two tours with the Snowbirds Jet Aerobatic Team, including one tour as team leader. More recently, Scratch has entered a new, exciting second chapter of his career as actor, producer, and director. It's an amazing life, and it's all coming up next. Scratch, it's great to have you on the Work Not Work show, and thank you for making time for us and, and allowing us to share this conversation with our audience. Well, thank you for the invitation. I, I find it very enjoyable to speak about these things. Seldom do we get the chance to sit down and reflect on our lives and, and chat with somebody like this. Scratch, as I researched this episode, there was a moment in your career that really leapt off the page for me. You're a third-generation fighter pilot. Most remarkably, there was a day back in 1999 that might be unique in aviation history. Can you tell us that story and walk us through that day? Interesting, I know the day you're speaking of. It's the day I got to fly with my father and my grandfather, both military pilots. It was, uh, it was really interesting, and I think it didn't register until a week or so afterwards how important that was to, to me, to the family, to my grandfather, to my father. I was the CF-18 airshow pilot at the time in 1999, and I was a, somewhat of a public figure, and I, I got to know the generals and what have you. And it just occurred to me, if there's an opportunity to do something unique with my family, it, would, it was that year. And so I put the request in. I said, you know, there's an opportunity here to showcase the 75th anniversary of the Air Force, which 1999 was. And I said, uh, 
would it be possible to take both my father and my grandfather in a flight where all three of us are airborne at the same time in F-18s? And the answer came back within hours as a yes. Wow. Pretty spectacular. Yeah. Grandpa was nervous. He had not been in a fighter since the last day he flew in France at the end of the war. And he... Um, what kind of plane did he fly? My grandfather was a Spitfire pilot wow. uh, for the RCAF 421 squadron. He was in Africa as a tank buster, train buster, and then at near the end of the war, he was with 421 squadron in, in France. And he flew about 400 missions over there, and uh, he didn't speak much of it. And as I became more involved in aviation, he opened up more about his time but I saw that day, at the time, he was a 78-year-old man, I saw him turn from my old grandfather to a young fighter pilot again. I saw the fangs come out. I saw, I saw that spark and fire come back in his eyes. It was, it was phenomenal. And I went, ah, that's, that's what I feel. I was 28, 29 years old, and I was, you know, as we say, a piss and vinegar fighter pilot. And... I, that was really neat to see my grandfather. My, my father, who's not, a, not much older than I am, in fact, he's, he's only 20 years older than I, he was still in, in the flying game. And I, I didn't see as big a, an arc for my father in this experience. He had flown F-5s and been in voodoos and whatnot, sort of in the jet age. It was the biggest transition I, th- I saw was through my grandfather's eyes. There's a pretty good chance that I actually saw your dad fly. Is that I used to attend the Abbotsford Air Shows in the early '70s, and the CF-101s, the Voodoo's, opened the show. And I'm thinking that I was around the same time. It very uh, may very well have been. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a funny story. It's just jogged my memory to this. So I had my uh, I had the approval to have my father in the back, my back seat, mm-hmm. and then my squadron commanding officer took my grandfather in the back seat and we the mission was a 2v2 so two airplanes versus two airplanes two of them went off to the north and two in the south my grandfather was in the northern package and we were in the south and we mixed it up a bit but at one point I said I really need to show my dad what the F-18 could do he had never been in one compared to what he had flown compared to what he had flown absolutely and I said, I just want to hold the north, my grandfather in the north, for about five minutes, and I want to wrap it up in a 1v1 dogfight with my dad in the back seat and my wingman, just a practice dogfight, just to show him. And sure enough, we hit the merge, and with my wingman, I went up. We were wrapping up. The, the F-18's a knife fighter. He likes to get slow, and it, it's a wrap it up nice and, and, and close. You can see the eyeballs in the other pilots and a cockpit. And at one point, I remember going up and reversing over, and I heard my dad in the backseat going, oh, nope, I don't think you should go. And I just remember thinking there was a moment where I'm like, no, dad doesn't know best. And I went the other way, and I got, I rolled in and gunned the guy. I'm like, yeah, dad, you lost it. You know? Well, that, that must have been kind of a, a special moment, realizing that the, uh, that the student had become the teacher. I think there was, and I think my father uh, took some pride in that moment, that he was along for the ride. And his son was propelling him through the air at a thousand miles an hour. Right. It was uh, probably quietly, uh, for my father, it was probably a, a quiet victory for him. Does that fighter pilot gene, is it something that is inherited from one to the other, or is it, a, is it something that you learn? 
That's an interesting question. I've reflected on what it is that makes a good fighter pilot. Having taught for five years at 410 Squadron, I, I found it very interesting to notice who did well and why. And I don't know if there's a genetic component. Certainly there was a socialization component in my case, growing up hearing the stories of my grandfather, the Spitfires, and my father witnessing him fly, you know, being inspired as a you know, little eight-year-old boy, seeing your dad fly by in a jet is pretty powerful uh, memory and image. But at the same time, there's, there are traits that make a good fighter pilot, right? And there's a certain level of commitment, aggression, and focus. But here's the catch. In all my time of teaching at Fort Squadron, the training unit for the, the F-18, ultimately the best fighter pilots had a highly creative side to them. And I was always amazed to find out that a certain pilot that had been doing well was an amazing illustrator, where they were an accomplished pianist. And there was something about that accessing that three-dimensional abstract ability and thinking and seeing in three dimensions that translates into the air. And certainly there's very accomplished pilots that are very engineer-minded and what have you, and they've been very successful. But in some cases, that left-right brain balance seems to outweigh some of the purely analytical approach to flying. In some cases, the extreme cases of that analytical approach to flying fighters, it becomes a little binary. And there's that little it factor that I think that creative component provides. Surprisingly, the decision to become a pilot, and specifically a military pilot, was not something that was a given when Scratch was growing up. Next, he talks about the moment when he finally made that decision to enlist in the Air Force and the reaction of his family. I usually ask guests on this show about the moment that they decided that they were going to do whatever it is they became passionate about. I'm going to flip that question over in your case. Was there ever a moment that you thought that you wouldn't be a pilot, given the fact that your father and your grandfather had been pilots? I knew I wanted to fly airplanes from an early age. That said, as I hit my mid-teens, I believe there was a bit of rebellion against my father and what he represented. I I rejected the notion of becoming a pilot, a military pilot specifically. It wasn't until I went to university and I started looking into other courses and, and areas of interest that I realized now there's something still pulling me into the air. And I remember specifically the moment where that switch came back on. I was sitting on the kitchen counter at my house in Victoria. My dad was just helping with dishes at the end. I just said to him, I think I'd like to go down to the recruiting office and inquire about being a pilot. And I think I probably was a bit nonchalant about it, but it really, I was waiting for his response to see, like, yeah, I think you should. And I could see that that made him very happy. So he, he, so ultimately, he did have this desire for you, but didn't articulate it. Correct. There was never any pressure uh, applied to me. Every once in a while, Grandpa, he would send the Top Gun VHS to me. And you know, so there was something about who Grandpa thought it was pretty interesting. Right. So it almost sounds as though your grandfather was more of an influence than your dad in deciding to become a pilot. I don't know that there was one more than the other because I think we do respond to our fathers quite a bit. And that was definitely, I saw in my father and I saw his joy of flight. And I remember the smells of sitting in the in the jets when he would bring me along and me putting on his helmet. And there was a, a smell to it, a familiar smell that ultimately there was something about me that wanted to do what he did. But there was that 
couple of years of sort of rejecting the premise of being a fighter pilot. Your own career in the RCAF ran from 1990 through 2010, so two decades. That's a large part of anybody's professional career. Two decades seemed like a, a daunting, immeasurable time when I was 19 years old when I decided to join the Air Force. It went by like a snap. And uh, I look back and I go, gosh, how did it go by so quickly? Yet at the same time, I look at what I was uh, able to participate in and how lucky I was to fly the types of airplanes I flew and the experiences that I had in those two decades. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable that I packed all that into two decades to the point where I think I somewhat ran out of goals within the Air Force. Some people have joked about the scratch career path, where they say, "Oh yeah, if you can pull off a, a scratch, you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's actually got that name." It's in, in sort of the vernacular of a sure. few people, but sure, I think it's more out of jest, and they're just having fun with me. Yeah, but I really did have a fortunate career and an action-packed, completely fulfilling two decades. I, I had a specific and uncompromising goals when I joined. I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and I wanted to be a snowboard pilot. I just accepted nothing else. Were there moments in that period where you felt that you didn't want to continue with being in the Air Force? Like, like I mean, you, you did spend a total of two decades, but were there turning points or were there inflection points where you said, you know what, I'm just not sure I want to go on to the next stage? There was a point at about the 11, 12-year mark when I was considering joining the uh, Royal Australian Air Force. I had done the research, I'd done the inquiry. It's about uh, a lateral shift over to the Australian Air Force, and they're very accommodating in that regard, taking other Commonwealth pilots. And the intrigue, the travel, and there was something that was drawing me over there. They flew F-18s as well, so there was quite a bit that was drawing me over. At the, at the end of the day, I took stock of what I was about and what I wanted yet to achieve in, in the RCAF. And I knew that after my first experience with the snowbirds, I, I had to go back as the snowbird commander. That was something that was very uh, motivating for me. So you were a demonstration pilot in CF-18s, and you were also, you had two uh, tours with the snowbirds. Help our listeners understand the discipline and regimen behind that. What I found in the Air Force, I tapped into another hidden passion of mine, and that is being a performer. Being the CF-18 demonstration pilot, I learned quickly that that was something that was part of me. Being able to take this unbelievable piece of technology and have hundreds of thousands of people watch you perform in front of them was very, very powerful to me. That was further motivating for me to pursue the snowbirds and then later as the snowbird lead. And so for me, there was something about the performing aspect of it. There was something about the heightened level of, I don't know if it's the risk, but the heightened level of stakes of performing low level to the ground and not just performing, but maximum performance of that aircraft. The CF-18 demonstration leaves little in the airplane. You're, you're working every nanosecond to make that airplane work when you're doing the CF-18 performance. I found that very fulfilling particularly as a young guy in my late 20s, that's sort of at the peak of one's fighter pilot career. You have all the skills and you still have the, the youth and vigor 
of, of being a fighter pilot. And I found that culminated in being that performer at that time. We are going to talk a little bit about the fact that you've made this major career transition. We're going to talk about that in quite a bit of detail. So you think that the seeds for that were sown when you were still flying, still flying precision aerobatics? The seeds of being a performer were absolutely planted when I became the CF-18 demonstration pilot. I knew I wanted to be a snowboard pilot, but I didn't understand that a big part of that was about being a performer and presenting something that I thought was amazing to an audience. Are you really flying as close as it appears, or is that somewhat of an illusion? It's interesting. Many people ask us, well, there must be computers helping you. There must be illusions that make it seem like you're really close. Absolutely not. Not only are there no computers helping us fly in the snowbirds, but we are actually, at times, four feet of wing overlap. You know, one minor bump, we could, we could touch wings. And I think people are surprised to see that. Certainly when we've taken media personalities and what have you in the airplanes, they're quite aghast how close we actually are to the point where you can see they're visibly uncomfortable. They're like, really, you have to fly this close? <laughs> and in some ways, it's actually, it, it assists the rolling motions of, of the, the larger formations. And you need to be that close just for the moment arms and the power available in the airplane. But it's really close. There's something fulfilling about being surrounded by a bunch of airplanes in close proximity. Now, you touched on something I think is very interesting, and then you talked about the relationship between yourself and the other pilots. We've had um, Dr. Bob Thursk mm-hmm. as one of our guests, and he talks about a brotherhood between astronauts. It, it almost sounds like something similar. There is a, a brotherhood, and in my case, a sisterhood, because I was on the team with uh, Maurice Carmichael, Uh, When I was a wingman, she was a wingman as well. But there is something about the quintessence of teamwork, the experience of being on the snowbirds, you, the stakes involved with that type of flying that I witnessed, the intense concentration, the intense training together, the intense shared experience of that. There was nothing that's compared in my life so far to that bond that you have with one another. And when that bond manifests, as I say, with that flight, that simple flight going down the, the glacial moraine, you really get to live and experience it. You, you did two tours with the Snowbirds. The first was as a member, and then the second time as a leader of the Snowbirds. How do you think the other members of the team would have described you as their leader? Hmm, interesting question. And being the leader was probably the most fulfilling experience in, the, in my two decades in the Air Force, uh, hands down. It was so rich and so wonderful. Even in the face of tragedy, I I would say that was some of the best two years of my entire life. And I found also something about myself, that I truly enjoy uh, leadership and I enjoy leading a group of people. I I enjoy bringing a group of people along with a shared vision, uh, my vision, a shared vision. And that's something that uh, changed me as a person. Coming up, Scratch reflects on the utterly unforgiving nature of the profession he had chosen and what he learned about himself in the face of tragedy. Scratch, you you said tragedy. What is it that you mean by that exactly? I lost a wingman in my first year of my tour as the team lead. He went down in the midst of a, a practice at our very first show site on the practice day. The honeymoon was over for me. Obviously, that's one of the worst days of my life, one of the worst experiences of my life. 
But on the flip side of that, that actually became one of the most formative experiences of my life that taught me what leadership really was. I had given lip service to leadership in the past. I had academically appreciated leadership. Many of the members of the team were peers of mine and contemporaries. We went through pilot training together. I just happened to uh, achieve a level of success, and I managed to come back as the team lead amongst uh, peers. And while they, I think they really accepted me as the leader and based on my experience and my approach to it, there was also always a, a feeling that they were, I was leading my peers. There was that moment after the, the tragedy where I, in the air, organized the team, got everyone to land, and every time we landed, every flight, it was always we met at the five jet wing, and we did a quick debrief, just before we went to the crowd or to the audience, what, what have you. And I said, let's keep it the same. Everyone meet me at the, at the five jet wing, and then we'll just talk about what happened. We'll make a plan going forward. The five jet is one yes. of the specific planes in the formation. Correct, the number five jet. It's in the middle of the line, so it, everyone would coalesce at that point. Of course, the, the generals and the, the air show staff, they met me at my airplane, and they started asking me questions. I said, gentlemen, ladies, I need to go to my team right now. And from my jet, I had to do those oh, 300 steps of most, some of the most important steps of my life, walking to it. And at that very moment, I knew what leadership was because amongst all those peers, the ground crew and fellow pilots, there were 21 sets of eyes looking at me saying, what do we do now, boss? That was the moment I knew that's what leadership's about. You have to rise to that occasion. You have to be there at that moment. And I pulled everything out of you know, my, the essence of me and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I came up with a plan at that moment that you know, seemed to register with them. And in the days following, staying strong for them and providing a focus on the way ahead and a plan to rebuild the team afterwards, which was sort of my second experience in all of this is how do you rebuild a team? And I, I learned that I really enjoyed leadership and I, I learned what leadership was. Can you, without betraying any confidence, which I'm assuming that that's part of that brotherhood, can you give some sense of how you responded to that? There was a balance of having to be very strong. I, I felt that I had to be a pillar of strength for, the, for the, the members of the team. I had to be that post for them to turn to. And at the same time, I, I found I had to find or I had to allow myself uh, moments of peer empathy and being one of the guys because being the snowbird lead is unlike many other commanding officer positions in the air force where often the commanding officer is not leading the charge he's usually in the back of the formation the young the senior captains the majors are the most tactically advanced but on the snowbirds you're not only the commanding officer and the lead but you're the point person you're at the front all the time and so with the snowbirds you're both a boss but you're also one of the team and you have to be a team member at times, and you have to be a boss at times. And so I think what I found in those dark moments were, was a balance between being a team member and being a strong uh, pillar of support for the team. I, th I like to think that I found that balance, and the team seemed to respond to it. But I, it was an interesting discovery for me about what that means as a leader. Eventually, in 2010, you finished up with the Royal Canadian Air Force you must have had very mixed feelings about wrapping up this stage of your life. I had an option to continue on in the Air Force. I was a lieutenant colonel, and some suggested that I had had this sword placed on my shoulder, 
that I was one of a few select people to carry on and uh, quite likely become a general and, and beyond. And that was very flattering. And I must say, I got caught up in that a little bit. And as one would, it's like, really? Wow. Because I, I thought I'd never make it past lieutenant. I got in trouble a couple of times as a young fighter pilot. <laughs> Say it isn't so. <laughs> yes. Goodness. My daughter's listening. I can't That's tell. right. There's a whole range of stories that he can't tell. That's right. But I, I realized while I was doing postgraduate training in Australia, I was sitting on a surfboard in Kulangara, one of my favorite places on the planet. And I had a moment where I said, I'm not going to fly airplanes anymore as a colonel and beyond. I was 39 years old. I was fairly young still. And I said, nothing else scares me in the Air Force. The fact of being a general doesn't scare me. And that was frightening in of itself, that I wasn't afraid of progression. Whereas everything else in my career, I was like, oh, am I going to make the snowbirds? Am I going to throw my name in there? If I don't make it, what would that, what would that look like? The fact of becoming a general didn't scare me, and I realized that was a turning point for me. That the challenge just wasn't there anymore. The challenge wasn't there, and I had set out to do a number of things, and I had achieved those. And I had discovered that there were other passions in my life that I needed to bite into. Because as a, as a snowbird pilot, we used to do countless visits to schools with talking to kids and our main message was pursue your dreams and goals and I realized I had to measure up to my own words and I had to embrace that which I was you know preaching to all these kids and I challenged myself it was terrifying but I challenged myself I said you have an opportunity that no one else has to go pursue a second goal so after retiring you spent a couple of years as a first officer for WestJet being uh, an airline pilot was fundamentally different than being a military pilot. And some people res- respond to it very well. I, it, didn't, it didn't grab me. I sort of knew that was going to happen because I've been very um, success-driven, very uh, goal-oriented, and I like to get within a situation and find what I like and rise in that aspect of what I I was doing, whether it's being an airshow pilot or as being a tactical person in my younger days, I found an aspect of something I could rise and potentially rise above other people. And, and, and it, people in a 737 don't appreciate four-point rules. No, they, they don't want to appreciate four-point <laughs> rules on a 737. But I think the airline thing didn't give me any sense of challenge. Certainly, it was, it was very interesting, and I'm very, very uh, happy that I did experience that aspect of aviation. I can say with authority what that is like now. Right. But at the same time, I, I didn't respond well to being a number. I knew that going to the airlines was a hedging my bets a little bit because I got out of, out of the Air Force with this clear goal of getting into film and television. Right. I thought I was going to be at the airline for 10 years and perhaps being a, be able to work part-time, do film, develop a, a performing career, training as an actor, developing a director, a, a producer career. But I quickly found out I had to make a decision early on. I had the extremely generous offer to fly the Vintage Wings F-86 Golden Hawk Sabre that quite singularly is one of the most amazing airplanes I've ever flown. I thought I was going to get into that and experience a 1950 pickup truck. Uh, having flown F-18s, you know, the, the 
pointy edge of technology and fighter aviation in its day, I thought, oh, okay, well, this would be interesting. I've always loved the airplane, but I expect it to be, you know, wobbly old crate. Mm-hmm. It was so unbelievably well-balanced. It was so well-conceived. And probably the only airplane that I've ever got into and felt completely at home within an hour. I, to the point where I was like, okay, what am I missing? Because this feels so right. This feels like I've been in it for years. And there was something about that airplane I connected to, the soul of that airplane to mine, that was magic. Uh, like I say, to the point where I had to hold myself back because I thought, I'm missing something. Wonderful airplane. After settling in as a commercial pilot flying 737s, Scratch thought he likely had a decade or two to wait before he got his chance to go after his true goal, which was to act, produce, and direct for film and television. Much to his surprise, opportunity came knocking just nine months later. So I'm guessing that the majority of our listeners will recognize your name and when they see the pictures, they'll recognize you as that guy from that show on Discovery Channel called Airshow. Yes, Airshow, it uh, basically was the catalyst for change for me. I have uh, somewhat of a mentor in the film industry, and he told me early on that to get into TV at anything but the bottom, go in with something you're an expert at. Aviation clearly was what I had in my back pocket. And a, and a wide, uh, an interesting, perhaps, background with aviation to, uh, for many people. So I had brainstormed an idea for a TV series. I don't like the term reality television, but a documentary series about the airshow industry because I knew a lot about it and I knew there were some amazing characters and some interesting stories. And I was involved with some flying myself. I thought, could we marry this all together? And so I partnered with somebody who had deep connections with Discovery Channel, who incidentally was coming up with this idea himself. We met at a convention. I heard him speak about it. I'm like, we should talk. Because I'm thinking about something like this now, but I don't have the, the means or wherewithal to, to, to get it going. And so we partnered on this. Little did we know that within nine months, Discovery Channel would say, yes, let's, let's make this. That's an incredibly short period of time. It is. I quickly realized that that expression, drinking from the fire hose, was not <laughs> understated. This, from somebody who had done all of what you had accomplished to that point, this was a challenge. Absolutely, it was a challenge. I was jumping into the deep end of something I knew nothing about in television, guided by the executive producer, of course, and, uh, and the, the people that surrounded us in this, in this project. But it came to a point where I had to decide I need to embrace a film television career or stay with the airline. And it, to be honest, I don't think it took me more than five minutes to decide. How, were you pleased with how, how, how Airshow turned out? Airshow was both, I think, a success and at the same time, it wasn't everything I hoped it to be. Okay. So I was really proud, I am very proud of the production value that came out of it. I think we were able to bring the experience of being an airshow pilot into the living rooms of people that you, you can't do at an airshow. We can't possibly bring people into the, into the hot ramp and into the jets and, and have them experience it the way we portrayed it on the, on the television. 
And at the same time, there's so much more I wish we could have done. I think I wish we could have been a bit more detailed in, in really the simple things that make up the air show industry. And I think the, the, the function of television these days is it's so hyperbolic and it's so, it forces such a pace that it didn't, I don't think we allowed everybody to breathe it in and really experience what being an air show performer can be. I think there was a reluctance on the part of the network to delve into those real human stories. And so I think we got, we hit across, skipped across the surface of the air show industry. And uh, I would have loved to have done more. So do you see another season? From what I can tell, there will be no more air show in its current form or the, the form that it was initially uh, conceived of. I see something uh, evolving from that. And in fact, I'm working on a digital branded series that follows the Patriots jet team around that I think will give a different insight into the operation of the Patriots, something slightly different than Airshow. And I, I think we'll see more of these micro series with Airshow performers now that the, the digital world is being opened up to everyone. I think that's the future of that connection between the Airshow fan and the Airshow community. We were somewhat um, curtailed by the number of characters we had to tell every story a little bit dilutes each of them down I, we could have told a whole story about Carol's wing operation mm -hmm. we could have told an entire story about the Patriots an hour long delving into all the details the finer works of you know, running seven jets and I think when you have so many characters squashed into 46 minutes ultimately right it, uh, it forces the little parts to pop out the sides. Right. This is the beginning of a whole second phase of your life. What are your goals? My goals are really uh, threefold. And some people have told me that I really need to pick one. I've never been good with convention. Right. And I say, why can't I be a producer, director, and an actor? Right. I realize that being an actor at this point in my career probably won't pay my North Vancouver mortgage. Right. Few things will. <laughs> no, not many things do these days, <laughs> it, it right. seems. But I also have been given uh, good advice that the control, the, the power, not in an ego way, but the, the control, the influence is being a producer-director. And then second to that, I think I'll probably get to enjoy the acting because whether I'm in an acting studio or I'm in a friend's independent film or I'm in a, a larger production, I actually get the same fulfillment as an actor. But I also have to recognize that I'm a, I'm a left-right brain balanced guy for the same reason I think that I was a good fighter pilot with a creative side and an analytical side that I could put together right. as an aerial performer, as a fighter pilot. So too in the film industry, there's so many skills that I've learned as a leader, as an operations officer of a fighter squadron, that it would be a shame not to use those as a producer. And then what I've, probably the biggest surprise to me and the most wonderful surprise to me is that the pure pragmatic of producing is the, the analytics, it's the, the logistics, it's all of those things. And let's say the other extreme would be the acting, which is the pure creative. Well, directing is the pure marriage of the two. And there's a highly creative side to it and yet there's a very important leadership and analytical side and understanding of how things work and how people work. 
that I really have enjoyed the directing side of it as I start to explore this you know, young directing career. And it's still very early, of course. But that's been my biggest surprise in all of this journey in the last five, six years so far is that directing is the, gives me a sense of both parts of me. Well, we just, in literally the previous episode, we, we spent time with a director based out of Toronto, a gentleman by the name of Tamir Moskovich. And again, what surprised me in that interview was, yes, there's art to it, but you've got to be good at all of the other details as well. You've got to be really sharp on the business side of it in order to be successful. I think what you've just described reflects that. It's not just about acting. It's about all the other moving parts that are required to actually make the, the product of all of that successful. That is very true. The, the, the art and the craft and the science of it all have to merge together. And what I, the term I like to use when I talk to people about what I do, it's not all that different than what I did as a uh, commanding officer of the Snowbirds. I had people, resources, and a creative twist. And that's, that's producing and directing. It's really what it is. And so I like to use the term, it's focused creativity. And the ability to focus the art at something is what I think separates some from others. And the skills I've learned as a commander in the Air Force and as a fighter pilot, and the art that I've been able to develop over the past 10, 15 years, I like to think that I'd be, I can direct that and focus it when I need to. So I hear a rumor that you're currently pursuing a project to turn Richard Back's book, Nothing By Chance, into a feature-length movie. I would love to do that. I haven't heard that rumor myself, though. Okay, I totally made that up. <laughs> but seriously, um, I wasn't going to have this conversation with you without bringing that up because it was the book that kindled my love for everything that flies as a kid. I have always hoped that somebody would eventually turn that book into a movie. You're the perfect guy to make it and the perfect guy to star in it. I, w- I would love to do both. And I've, uh, in fact, Richard Bach, uh, had an impact on me as well, his writing. When I was young, going through pilot training, I read a number of his books, and I think that's what grabbed me, is here was a guy, he was a pilot, a fighter pilot, but he understood the human condition, was able to put it down in words. That's what I'm trying to do with film and television, and we're not all that different in the sense that I'm trying to put down what I know about aviation, I'm trying to merge it into film, and a lot of my projects no surprise, they're about aviation. I have a fascinating project coming up. I'm partnering with a co-producer on uh, a family adventure with warbirds and a little bit of time travel, like all the things I love. And it's a movie that I would be proud to bring my kids to see. And sure enough, it's filmmaking and it's aviation. Like it just doesn't get better than that. So if I was ever able, not only the privilege of meeting Richard Bach, but to you and me both speak speak with him <laughs> right. uh, about turning one of his books into a movie. Gosh, that would be a dream. Well, and to be honest with you, nothing by chance has become a kind of a life philosophy of mine. I don't know if Richard Bach necessarily intended it that way. I've had some ups and downs in my career, and I've always said, you know what? According to Richard Bach, nothing happens as a random act. Somewhere along the line, you'll have to see if that's been optioned. I suspect it probably has. Well, you've now given me another challenge. At his core, he's an aviator. The two of you would have so much in common. I would just love to see that happen. And it's interesting you say that word aviator because I'm invited to speak at a number of events and whatnot in unrelated aviation of fire investigators course or whatnot. And I really, I try to explain to these groups the difference between an aviator and a pilot. A pilot just flies an airplane. 
an aviator, it's in his soul or her soul. And uh, there's a big distinction. I see exactly what you're saying. Richard Bach is an aviator through and through. It was only after the fact that I learned that he was the author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel. That movie and that book makes so much more sense when you read his other books. In our next segment, Scratch Mitchell talks about the future for him, what advice he can offer the next generation, and whether he has any regrets about his career. Scratch, where do things go from here for you? I, I reflect on my future every day, just about. I, I can say with certainty that I have no regrets in leaving the Air Force to pursue a film and television career. And I'm starting to feel the traction of change and micro-successes. And I, it gives me hope. It gives me um, encouragement that I'm doing the right thing because it feels really right. And I have my check-in point is within the first 10 seconds when I wake up, how I feel about something is probably the most truest 10 seconds of my day. And I feel good about pursuing a, a film and television career. I know that I'm going to pursue more directing. I know I'm going to be producing films and feature films. I know I'm going to be pursuing myself as a performer and acting more. And despite what some have said, I need to pick one. I'm not going to. Right. I'm going to do all three. Right. A funny story about how you and I met. Um, you were just minding your own business at the Springbank Airport um, in Calgary um, at the little cafe there, and my wife and I were rude enough to actually be listening to your conversation. Um, I remember thinking at the time, wow, this guy would be a great guest. But then you finished up and you left. I'm only slightly embarrassed to say that we came after you. <laughs> I tracked you down in a parking lot on the airport property, and, well, here we are. I actually find that very amusing because... You hear you say you felt a bit embarrassed for tracking me down. If you recall what I was doing, I was throwing old magnetos in a dumpster that I wasn't sure I was allowed to be at because I was given all this stuff. It was for a movie set. I was out there working on a movie for Netflix uh, with coordinating all the aerial activity and directing some of it. We're going to ask about that in a second. And, and I had all these extra parts. I'm like, I'm going to the airport shortly. I don't know what to do with this. And I saw a dumpster and I was just... I think I'd just thrown one of the magnetos in and made a tremendous twang. Right. And then you pull up, and I thought, oh, no, I'm busted. I'm the law. <laughs> I, I thought for a second that always right. come to give me grief and yell at me. And then, right. Yeah, so that actually mutually was embarrassed. So, so being asked to do a podcast was easy by comparison. Does that happen often? Do you get recognized? And if you do and when you do, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it's an interesting existence as an airship pilot. When you're in the uniform, specifically when you're in a snowboard uniform, you're very identifiable. And we used to call it micro-celebrity status. So amongst the aviation community, they would know who you are, but outside of that, people generally don't. It's been interesting being part of a television series that was uh, successful and many viewers, that uh, people do recognize you on the street at a frequency that's not intrusive at all, because, it, it, let's face it, it's not you know, Scratch and the Kardashians. It's, it's an airshow TV series, a very niche kind of program for uh, people that watch that. But I, I get it you know, at least once a week where someone say, you know, I know you from somewhere. Where, are you that stretch, scroach, <laughs> scratch guy? <laughs> right. yeah, it's usually they, they're really close. <laughs> right. And uh, I find it amusing. And uh, I find it uh, better when, you know, there's a, a dad with his, his 
daughter or son and said, hey, do you mind talking to my son or my daughter because we remember you from that TV show? And I find that very rewarding. Well, I, I think I was worse than that. I think I said, aren't you the air show guy? <laughs> I didn't even remember your name, which is really yeah. bad. But uh, but it anyway, it worked out well, I think, in the end. I think this has really turned out very well. The reason for you being in Calgary and at Springbank was a no, new project that you were working on. Now, to the degree that you're able, can you tell us a little bit about that? I can tell you about this movie I was part of. It's uh, I, It was a cold call to me, and this is one of those little micro-successes that I've uh, really enjoyed of late. I received a call and said, I'm so-and-so from Netflix. Uh, we have a movie being shot in Calgary. We uh, Would you consider being our aerial coordinator? I'm, I thought maybe perhaps it's a crank call because Netflix, uh, to <laughs> one, me... One of your former Snowbird teammates. Yes, yeah, they're just playing a spoof on me because they know I've jumped into this deep end. Right. But Netflix is an organization I really see that type of subscription video, the future of entertainment, and I've wanted to become closer to that type of organization, so I thought this, wow, what a tremendous honor and success to be part of this. So I jumped on the opportunity, and what I thought initially was going to be just a few days of consulting out there turned into uh, quite a number of days spread over two months and becoming very uh, drawn into the process of the, making this film. And uh, the film's called Hold the Dark, and it's, a, it's based on a best-selling book that uh, you know, has an amazing cast of people in it, got to work with wonderful people, and the freedom they gave me to exercise my aviation wherewithal was really rewarding. So it was a tremendous experience. It just wrapped up just a few days ago, and you know, we hope to see this within the year. I was going to say, when can we expect to see that on Netflix? Uh, they've said early 2018 it should be out on Netflix. What advice can you offer to that kid who sees you and the career you've had and that you're having, and they say, I just want to be like him. Um, I want to live the kind of life he leads. Oh, you know, it's a very flattering question, and at the same time, I, I reflect on a little bit what's worked for me and what hasn't. I would say if anyone, it wouldn't necessarily, here's how to replicate what I've done in terms of flying or moving into film, but the process. And I think one of the biggest uh, lessons in my life has been I was able to figure out who I was and what motivated me at an early age. That allowed me to be genuine to myself in the sense of what makes me tick. And I think there's a lot of pressures in society and everything else and family, spouses, what have you, to, that sort of contorts our self-identity. And it was having to acknowledge to myself that there's part of me that wants to perform really allowed me the freedom to say, well then, who cares? Just do it. After having a sort of a, a tangible recognition, self-recognition of what makes me work, then applying that tenacity that made me a young fighter pilot and add that to the equation. And insatiable drive uh, would be the second part of it. Do you think a lot of people, is it your sense that a lot of people have that passion and repress it? I, I, think, I think everyone has passions they repress. You know, I probably have others that I haven't fully explored yet. Right. I think it's a shame that in a country like Canada, people don't enact on their passions more because I think it's not just a right we have. I actually think it's, it's an obligation. I've said that to groups of people I've spoken with at, at cadet organizations or youth gatherings. I say it's not just an option for you. It's, it's, it's an obligation. 
if you have everything we have going on in Canada and the opportunities, I think it's, it's a crime not to chase dreams. Regrets? I mean, is there anything in your career, if you could turn the clock back, that you would do differently? I've reflected on my experiences, my decisions, my life, and of course there are little things I say, oh, I wish I'd done that here or there, but I think I have an overarching sense of that we truly are the composite of all our components. And you take one of those pieces out that maybe I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't made a mistake back when I was 18 or, or what have you. That said, the one thing that I truly wish I had embraced earlier on in high school was getting into drama and exploring that. I was, I was simply too afraid to, to go audition. I was too afraid to go to the drama teacher and say, I'd like to join. I was too afraid to sign up for a drama class because I was almost paralyzed to speak in front of a, a crowd when I was in high school. That's a shock. It, it, it is to many people now because I public speak and I've been a television figure in news or what have you, but in the day I was a reasonably popular kid, which is a silly term, but I was an athletic kid, so I was involved in a lot of sports and had good friends there. I was did reasonably well at school, so I sort of was in that group, and I sort of friends with everyone in, in high school. And so I had no problems being around groups of people, but you asked me to stand up and speak in front of the class, I would almost fall over. So that is one thing I wish I had explored earlier. But then I have to think about, it was a point in my life where I said, okay, enough of this. And I said, I'm sinking my teeth into this to fix it. That's made me perhaps who I am today. Well, I think from the audience perspective, I'll sort of act, I'll speak on their behalf, is that thank goodness there's going to be somebody who's going to be making aviation-related material who understands aviation first. Because so often what you get in popular entertainment is somebody who understands the craft of making movies and they know a little bit about flying. And to me, you know, being somewhat detail-oriented, that's always frustrating. The, the devil is in the details. That is my goal. I really want people to experience what I've experienced vicariously through the screen. With a career or careers like yours, it must also take a big commitment on behalf of your wife and you have two children. Talk a little bit about the relationship with your family and where that fits in and all of these other things that you're involved in. My decision to pursue film and television has taken its toll on the family unquestionably. Financially, um, in terms of my time commitment devoted to developing a film career, most people when they're hitting their mid-40s are hitting their stride financially and in success in their career and position and everything else. And I've thrown that all aside to start over. And that has cascading effects within the family. I'd like to be home more. I'd like to be able to take more elaborate vacations at time. Right. Now that there's some seeds of change, you know, I think the family's seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps as much as I am. But it's, uh, it's not without its compromise. But at the same time, I know Geneviève, my wife, she's, um, she saw you know, fire in my eyes 20 years ago as somebody that chased dreams and, and did those sorts of things. I think she knew that if I made that decision to do something, I wouldn't do it foolishly. During our interview, we had an unusual opportunity we don't often get, which was to hear from other members of our guest's family. Scratch's daughter, Charlotte, who is in grade eight, sat through the interview and also helped us with the session photography. But it seemed like a great opportunity to hear her thoughts about her dad's career. I started by simply asking her what it was like having him for a dad. 
It was a lot different than most kids would have. I find that my dad was often gone when I was younger. I, I was kind of used to it, but it was it was a lot of fun because we got to travel a lot uh, when he moved to when we moved to Australia. I remember whenever my dad would come back, I'd go greet him at his jet, and I was really happy to see him. I continued by asking Charlotte if she ever worries about the fact that her dad is involved in a profession that some would perceive as being risky. Uh, sometimes it does, yes. Uh, I find I hear a whole bunch of stories, and it, it makes me a little worried sometimes. But when I know he's a safe pilot and that he'll be okay, and I try not to imagine the worst-case scenario... Finally, I was curious to know what her friends at school might think about her father having such an unusual profession and whether, maybe, they give her a hard time from time to time. Well, I, I explain um, that my dad is a pilot, producer, uh, etc. <laughs> it's hard to keep track sometimes. Hard to keep track. So, okay, and do you think that, that you run into a credibility problem? Do you think that people maybe think that you're exaggerating a little bit? Yeah, most times they're like, that's not true. And I'm like, I've got thousands of things to prove. <laughs> do you have to ever have to bring him to school to prove it? Yes. Oh, okay. Every time I change school, usually I have him come <laughs> for and, a presentation. And, and, and he obliges you, I'm sure. <laughs> is he pretty good in front of the, 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 the class at school or in front of the assembly at school? He's pretty good? Yes, he is. Yeah. yeah. As you will now know, Charlotte is quite a remarkable young woman, and I really appreciate her coming on and talking with us. It took a lot of courage, and it's contributed so much to this episode. Can you tell us the story of where you got the nickname Scratch? <laughs> As it turns out, the canopy of an F-18 costs quite a bit of money. And I found out in my first week on squadron at, in Bagotville, 433 squadron, mm -hmm. when I substantially scratched a canopy air to refueling that week. That, I shouldn't laugh. Uh, it's actually no, quite it's, a serious situation. It is, but it's, yeah. it's sort of funny to me as well that and you, they're looking for something. In your first weeks and months on squadron, they're looking for some blunder because it's not like the movies right. where you get cool call signs. It's something you've done wrong ultimately. Right. And so they called me the Scratch Man, and it's stuck ever since. I see. So it actually scratched when the refueling hose knocked into the canopy as you were either connecting or disconnecting from the fueling plane. That's when I was trying to connect. I see. And they, they went from head to toe on this thing, and, and foolishly I got out of it, you know, just young. I was 24 years old, and, I, and it was a French squadron, so I was trying to, my best friend, to explain to them, I think you're going to be able to buff it buff out. It and they came with wide eyes, and they basically <laughs> said to me that you just about lost your entire head. Well, I was going to say is that yeah. it was actually a very serious, I mean, it could have yeah. been potentially a very serious situation, I yeah, think. so I've been the scratch man. Oh, there you go. Scratch, as we approach the end of our time today, regular listeners of the show will know what to expect next, and that is we give the guests the opportunity to ask the last question. So what's the question you've always wanted to have been asked but never have? This is your chance to both ask the question and answer it. What, what I find interesting, because of the career paths I've chosen and flying fighter jets and jumping into daunting pools in the film and television world, people often 
say, oh, you're fearless, you're, you know, to be able to do all this. No one ever asked me if I'm afraid of things. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, are you afraid of things? Well, I think so. Uh, I think that's actually been part of the success for me is that I've been able to face fears rather than run from them. I'll confess to you one right now, as much as I've taken acting training and I'm comfortable standing in front of 2,000 people public speaking or performing, mm-hmm. uh, you ask me to stand up on stage and sing happy birthday, <laughs> I probably would fall over. I, I have never trusted my ability to sing, which is ironic because I have a daughter who has a perfect voice and a wonderful singer, and she didn't get it from me, clearly. <laughs> but that's something that I still hold as a fear to do in public. But I, I've, you know, I'll have to you know, eat my words or face my words at some point because everything else in my life that I've been fearful of, I've been able to, in some way, address. I've taken it on. And I think I like to live my life a little bit in that, that zone between pure joy and pure terror. Because I think if you're not a little bit scared of what you're doing, you're not pushing yourself hard enough but you have to be enjoying it at the same time. They do say there was a survey some number of years ago where people are actually more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. <laughs> and, and like Jerry Seinfeld said, I think it was, so what you're basically saying is that you'd rather be the guy in the box than the guy doing the eulogy. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was that guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Scratch, it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation today. I always try and leave the door open for a future discussion when we'll get a chance to visit again and update our audience on your remarkable career. Can we call on you again in the future? Perhaps on the set of Nothing By Chance? Well, I would guarantee if I get that arranged, you are more than welcome to come. And I would invite this. I would, I would love to see where you are in a couple of years and where I am in a couple of years. I think it would be an interesting conversation to reflect on what we've talked about today and where we both ended up. Well, it's a date. We'll make sure that we do that. Again, thank you so much for your time today, Scratch, and uh, please fly safe. Thank you. It's entirely my pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Work Network Show, and I would like once again to thank our very special guest, aviator, actor, and producer-director, Scratch Mitchell. It has been a true delight. I would also like to once again thank his daughter, Charlotte, for making a truly engaging guest appearance and for helping with the photography. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. We're also on Patreon, and we would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Scratch, have turned their passion into their profession. 